Well, we heard, read the Gospel of Luke and his account of the birth of the Savior in chapter uh, 2, verse 14, how the angels said, glory to God in the highest. This being the day when many are celebrating the Lord's birth, or at least stopping to commemorate the Lord's birth, at the same time being in the midst of our exposition in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where we left off with the birth of a baby. Well, if you remember last time in 1 Samuel 4, we saw the birth of a baby named Ichabod, which means no glory. So how do we go from no glory to glory? And what is glory? How does knowing about God's glory help us to understand who God is, how we relate to him. It's going to be a bit of a different message. I'm not going to go into a specific text. We're going to be looking out over the entirety of Scripture and look at this matter of glory, a word that appears over 600 times in our English Bibles. So you can imagine we're not going to dissect anything. It was kind of like the, a bird's eye view, a flyover of this issue of glory. What is glory? In theological and devotional writings, this idea of God's glory is mentioned often, yet it seldom is precisely defined. And as a result, many have a vague or ambiguous understanding of God's glory. And so I would ask you, just think for a moment, if someone were to challenge you, how do you define glory? Can you come up with a definition? The glory of God is, has several biblical senses. There is a created glory, which God makes visible to us through creation. There is an uncreated glory, or an essential glory, that God has in his essence, in his being, that the Son of God has from before the foundation of the world, that he did not get when he became a child born in the manger, but he had from before the foundation of the world. In the scriptures, we find glory as a noun active in various ways. Throughout the scripture, throughout the Old Testament, it comes and it goes. It passes and it goes down and it goes up and it goes out and arises and it flies away and it stands and it dwells, sends, shines, fills, rejoices, and sings praise. Sometimes glory is used to signify what is internal. God has an inherent, an internal glory that belongs to him, that's independent of what he does. He is inherently glorious. And sometimes glory is an emanation or a manifestation or a communication of that glory. God has an extrinsic glory, which is his intrinsic glory, that is his internal glory, manifested partially, only partially manifested in his works, in his creation in providence, in our lives, in redemption, and ultimately in the consummation. Sometimes glory is used in an inward sense. Paul writes, for example, in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And sometimes glory is an outward expression or of that sense, of that inward sense. 1 Corinthians 10.31, again, the Apostle Paul, do all things to the glory of God. The many ways that Scripture uses this term glory can make it seem complex. Many have tried to define glory. 
Words fail. But not without reason. God's glory is multifaceted. It's too multifaceted to be summarized with simple words. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, wrote extensively on the subject of glory, but he could never find the satisfaction in a simple, straightforward definition. It's kind of like a diamond. It has many facets that are connected, diverse but connected. Here's one author's attempt to define glory. You're going to hear it. It's quite complex, but this is an attempt. It falls short. It's an attempt to define glory. He writes, God's glory is the ever-increasing revelation of his essence and purposes displayed through his word, his works, and his felt presence, which calls for the receiver's unity and reflection and tells of his incomparable goodness, beauty, and praiseworthiness as perfect king, savior, judge, and creator, and of unequaled reputation attached to his name. That's a mouthful. But as complex as glory is to define, we're not to be confused and think that God's glory is distant, that it is unattainable, that it's confusing. And I hope that in this short span of this sermon, that as I unfold this subject, God's glory will to you become more imminent, more knowable. I'm going to argue today that God's glory has always been imminent. In other words, it's always been more imminent than transcendent. That is more about visual substance and sense than invisible. If indeed the hope of every believer is that glory, according to Colossians 1.27, then it's essential that we understand the scriptural implications of glory. Knowing about God's glory is essential for the Christian because it's all over the scriptures. And God's glory is important personally because it is our chief end, right? As believers, we can quote the catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we could parrot that catechism and not know what it even means to glorify God. How do we glorify God? My goal today is to help develop at least an introductory understanding of glory, tracing glory throughout the biblical narrative, kind of making a, coming up with a, a brief biblical theology of glory, from starting in Genesis and going right up to the birth of Christ, so that we understand glory and how to glorify God better. I'll begin by defining the terms biblically. We have three major terms that are often associated with glory. The main Hebrew word for glory is the word that we saw last time from the name Ichabod. It's kavod, kavod. There is also the equivalent Greek term in the New Testament, doxa. And then there is this extra biblical term that the rabbis have come up with uh, called shekinah, shekinah. Kavod is the most important term in the Bible for God's glory. From kavod is developed this New Testament term doxa, which is a Greek word which prior to the writing of the scripture, doxa had very little to do with glory at all as we understand glory, but the word came to mean uh, the equivalent of kavod. Uh, That's the primary uh, word in the New Testament. And then this third term, Shekinah, it's not in the Bible at all, 
a word, though, that was used by the rabbis to describe a specific, one facet of kavod, specifically the glory that was manifested in the tabernacle, that light, that cloud by day, and that fire by night that led Israel through the wilderness, that manifested in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. Shekinah is an interesting word because I believe it does capture the purpose of God in showing his glory. In Jewish theology, Shekinah refers to the presence of God in the world, specifically God dwelling among his people. Now let's look at this first term, kavod, because I think this is, again, this is the most important term. This is where I want to spend most of my time. The root of kavod means weight or heaviness. It has to do with a substance. Depending on its form and its sense, it could mean uh, words like honorable or revered or exalted, dignified. But at its core, it means weight. It describes Eli's physical heaviness in 1 Samuel 4. It describes Absalom's hair in 2 Samuel 14. It describes Moses' hands as being heavy in Exodus 17, 12. They were kavod. Uh, it speaks of Abram, his good reputation of Abram. It says he was very rich in the inner being of man. That is, he was kavod. David used this word in Psalms many times. He said, my heart is glad. He spoke about his whole being rejoicing. That is, his kavod rejoicing. Pharaoh's heart was kavod, heavy, meaning it was hardened. In, in Psalm 3, verse 3, God's shield in battle is called kavod, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, my kavod, and the one who lifts my head. And we don't understand that to mean that God's shield is particularly heavy as a piece of armor, but rather that it was strong, it was sure. God is the sure and strong defense for his people. So kavod could be spoken of, used in, in literal terms like heavy, as well as in figurative terms like weightiness, something that's burdensome, something that uh, carries the idea of import, gravity. It's used to describe the majesty and rule of God as king. Kavod, I don't have time to get into it today, it would make a wonderful study in itself, but kavod is a, is a word in a sense that swells throughout the scripture. It grows until the final consummation. God's glory goes out into the whole world. It, it swells. It's an it has an eschatological significance. God's glory initially revealed only to Israel and only to this one single place is manifested ever increasingly until it encompasses the whole earth. Isaiah 40 verse 5 says, The glory, the kavod of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This idea of God's kavod filling the whole earth is critical throughout the scriptures. It's found in the law, the Psalms, the prophets. In the law, Numbers 14, 21. In the Psalms, 72, 19. And in the prophets, Isaiah 6, 3 and Habakkuk 2, 14. God's glory swelling, growing until the day when all humanity are subject to his glorious rule. The earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah 35, the deserts will know the glory of Lebanon. Isaiah 60, glory will come from the nations to the temple. And ultimately, in the New Jerusalem, 
the maximum glory. Revelation 21 describes the, the holy city coming down out of heaven from God as having a glory, a radiance like a rare jewel, having no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Most often, though, in Scripture, and really the one point that I really want to focus on today is that kavod, or glory, communicates the presence of God. Glory communicates God's presence. When you hear glory, think presence of God. As we analyze this word kavod in the Bible, we're going to learn that the word glory recalls God's presence. And that's really what I want you to understand. If you only understand that one point, you'll understand so much more about glory than you did when you came in. That manifest presence, that physical reality that one could see, touch, feel, hear. It's that facet of glory that the rabbis called Shekinah. Again, not in the Bible, but there in the Talmud, in the Jewish writings, conveying this idea, God is touching his people. He is dwelling with his people. He has this desire to fellowship with his people in a covenant relationship with his people. This facet of glory is illustrated in what are called theophanies in Scripture. That is, what's a theophany? It's God's physical presence, God's manifestation, his presence, fully sensed, a fully sensed reality. A, a theophany is not a dream or a vision. It's a fully sensed reality. Jacob, for example, wrestles with a theophany, and that wrestling is real. Yeah, you want to know how it's real? Well, he came out of it, this wrestling match, literally with his hip thrown out of joint. A, a dream or a vision can't do that. This was a literal, physical presence that was with him. In a theophany, God makes his presence felt, his, his word heard. This manifested glory in a theophany not only refers to physical things, but also any physical manifestation. So, things that we see today. Psalm 29 uh, declares that God's kavod, his glory, is in the thunder or in the floods. In Psalm 97, glory is manifested with clouds and lightning bolts and fire and hills that melt like wax. Exodus 24, 15, God is seen as a consuming fire, a fearsome cloud. In the visions of glory in Ezekiel, he describes them with brightness and fire and a rainbow. While God's glory fills the heavens in theophanies, it comes down and meets mankind. We see this, for example, in Exodus chapter 40 at Sinai, where it says the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was physical. They could sense it. They could see it. The authors of Scripture who described God's glory were people who experienced a very real, palpable phenomena, a real God's presence. Moses, for example, in Exodus 33, verses 18 to 20, says to God, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says to him, I'll let my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh. 
I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you can't see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now Moses did not see the face of God that day, but he did see something, didn't he? There was a magnificent manifestation, so magnificent that the word tells us that when Moses returned from seeing God in this way, it changed his own appearance. As the scriptural passages are analyzed, we see that the kavod of God is far more imminent than it is transcendent. Far more about physical manifestations than it is the invisible or spiritual reality. Something physical is happening that people can see, feel, touch. We find that as God reveals his glory, that his purpose in revealing his glory is to dwell with his people, to be one with his people, to be known by his people, to enter into a relationship, a covenant fellowship with his people. And as we trace this concept of glory, God's presence throughout the scripture, we come to the conclusion that this is God's chief end in glorifying himself. What is, what is God's purpose in revealing his glory? It is to be our God and we his people. From the time that God first confirms his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, all the way up to the end of the Bible in Genesis 21, God repeats this statement. He says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. There is God's purpose in the manifestation of glory. The glory of God is a magnificent theme throughout the scripture. It is addressed in every major biblical section related to every biblical doctrine. It is interwoven through the Bible story. It is so central to scripture that the story of the Bible, in some sense, is the story of glory. Many key passages from creation to the creation of human beings in the image of God, crowned with glory, to the exodus through the Red Sea, to the Sabbath, to God's revealing to Moses in Exodus 33, to the cloud of, of, of glory in the tabernacle that filled the tabernacle, to the temple that replaced the tabernacle, to the earth, to the heavens, to the revealed visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel. The glory of God, even identified with God's people, Israel, in Isaiah 40, verse 5. And in the New Testament, where is glory? In the New Testament, identified with Christ, in his incarnation, his miracles, the transfiguration, his suffering and his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, the second coming, the judgment, the story of glory. The story of glory is that the eternal, holy, triune God, who is glorious and gracious, communicates his glory through creation, through image bearers, us, human beings, through providence, through circumstances in our lives, through the redemptive acts of his Son, and through his reign and through his judgment. God then receives glory, ultimately, through uniting us to Christ, sharing his glory with us, and then we, in response, glorify him. 
What do we do? We rejoice, we worship, we enjoy, we live for Him, we prize Him forever. I want to now highlight just a few of those points in that, in that story. A few key moments where God's glory takes the center stage. God first chose to display His glory in creation. If you don't believe me, on a clear night, in a, in, not in a city environment, but if you go off into a country environment on a clear night, and you look up into the galaxy, you see the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy has 200 billion stars. On a good night, you may be able to see one forty millionth of, of them. The Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across. That's about 600,000 trillion miles. Try to fathom that. And besides our galaxy, that's just our galaxy. There are 50 million other galaxies. And the God who we are talking about today, Yahweh, made this universe. And he did it by merely speaking. He did it by merely saying the word. All of this came into being. And then he didn't only create it, but he holds it together by the word of his power. There is no other maker behind the maker of all. He is simply and awesomely absolute. He has no beginning and he has no end. That is your God. If you are in Christ, that is your God. And if you're not in Christ, and he is not your God, then realize that everyone, every single person without exception, will have to reckon with this God. Sooner or later, now or later, you're going to have to reckon with this God. So today, if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not trusting in Christ, you're not trusting in His finished work for your salvation, the Scripture says that the wrath of this awesomely glorious Creator God is against you. And nothing could be far worse to think about than to be opposed by the wrath of an infinite power, the power that created this universe. So you're really left with two possibilities. Every human being has two possibilities. Either you rebel against his absolute authority over you as his creature, and you say, you know what? Yeah, maybe God exists, but you know what? I'm going to try this out my way. I'm, I'm going to try to follow this God on my terms. I've got it figured out. I, I, th this is all going to work out. Don't worry. I'm going I'm to make it to heaven in the end. Or you bow in humble adoration. You bow in submission to this one who created it all. Your hope is that this creator God would be merciful to you that he would pour out his mercy today on this eve of Christmas and regenerate your soul, that you would repent and believe the gospel. That is your hope. That is your only hope. That today would be the day of salvation, that you would bend the knee and stop doing things your way, on your terms, trying to figure God out in your terms and submit to his. Because everyone, every single human being, will fulfill their eternal purpose and glorify God forever. And it is either going to be in this life as your Savior or in the life to come as your judge. So receive the free gift of eternal life 
The wages of sin is death, the scripture says. The gift of God, the free gift of God. Talk about gifts on Christmas. Many of you are waiting to, to open them up, right? Well, God is laying out this free gift to you today. The free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Yours is simply to say, thank you, Lord. Back to the story of glory. We talked about creator, this creator God. Created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19 says the heavens and the earth declare his glory. If you don't believe in him, just look around. The stamp of his image is everywhere. And then God created human beings in his image, crowned with glory, to be a display, to convey that glory to the whole earth. God created light, says. God is light. The very first thing he created, let there be light. And at key times in the Bible, God manifested himself as light. Genesis 15, Pastor Brahim, uh, not too long ago, preached through Genesis 15 about when God made that covenant with Abraham. God manifested himself as light. When Abraham took the sacrifice and divided it, God came through the sacrifice in the form of a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. That's another theophany, a manifestation of his glory at a key moment in history. Kavod pops up a few more times in Genesis, referring to Jacob and Joseph, but the next time that the word kavod appears in Genesis is in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, very interesting point. I want you to keep it in mind because I'm going to come back to it. But in Genesis 49 verse 6, Jacob is prophesying over his sons. And he has different prophecies for each son. And he comes to the prophecy of Simeon and Levi. And he says this in Genesis 49, verse 6. He says, let not my kavod, let not my glory be united to their assembly. Let not my glory be united to their assembly. And who is he talking about? Simeon and Levi. And it's interesting because God is making it very clear. The prophecy is, do not, I will not unite my glory with the house of Levi. Of all of the tribes of Israel, who were the ones to see most of the glory of God? Who were the most to see what the rabbis called the Shekinah, the glory cloud, the smoke, the pillar of fire? It was all associated with the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, which is which tribe is linked to that? Levi. Exactly. The Levites. Yet God says he will not unite his glory with their assembly. There must be some difference between seeing or showing glory and uniting. The implications of that difference are eternal. Showing and uniting, as different as death and life. God would not unite his glory with the house of Levi. Store that in your mind. We'll come back to it in a minute. Remember, just kind of moving systematically through the Bible. We'll pick up now. We'll go to the, uh, the second book of the Bible, Exodus. God first manifests himself to Moses. How? In the theophany, a bush that burns. It's, it's on fire, but it's not consumed. That's the glory of God manifested to Moses. Later, we saw in Moses in Exodus 33, when he's getting the law, Moses asks to see God's glory, and God gives him that glimpse of his goodness. He shows him his back, but even that is enough for Moses to come down the mountain and his face shone so much that he had to wear a veil over his face 
for the people to look at him. From here now in Exodus, we'll move quickly. It's mentioned a couple of times in Leviticus, but we'll move to the book of Numbers where that word glory is often associated with the Shekinah. That is the manifest presence of God in the cloud. This was when God was showing his witness to Israel to be, to be his presence while they were wandering in the wilderness. So let's turn to this, because this is a long scripture I would like to read. Uh, Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. I want to show you how specific. Look at verses 15 to 23 of Numbers 9. Look how specific God's guidance is, his love, his care as he leads his people. Numbers 9, verse 15. Now on every day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. In the place where the clouds settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. And at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained for one day, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained only in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. What's, what's the point we're getting here? God cares about his people in the, in the minutia of a day-to-day -day leading. He, he wants to be Lord of every moment. This Shekinah was not only the manner by which God led his people, but it was the guarantee of his presence with his people, his providence, his desire to commune, to lovingly lead his people. As we continue on throughout the Old Testament, this Shekinah, this manifest presence of glory, continued in the tabernacle on and off, depending on a, a lot on the, the obedience or disobedience of the nation, of his people. Continued, though, in the tabernacle, and then was transferred in 2 Chronicles 7. I don't have time to read it, but the glory comes in Solomon's temple. When Solomon finished the temple and it was dedicated the glory descended. The temple now was the physical place that stayed in Jerusalem. No longer this tabernacle that moved around the wilderness. Now that they're in the land, they set up this temple, and the glory of God descended in 2 Chronicles 7. The glory then continued in the temple until the time of the prophet Ezekiel. And who's Ezekiel? Ezekiel is the prophet, remember, that, that warns Israel, that warns God's people to, to repent or else judgment was coming, exile was coming. So finally, it happens, 
And Ezekiel describes how the Shekinah departed from the temple in stages. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens in stages. First, the Shekinah is moved out of the Holy of Holies in Ezekiel 9.3 to the threshold of the temple. Then the glory of God is moved from the threshold to the eastern gate in Ezekiel 10. And finally, in Ezekiel 11, it goes away completely. Let's look at this. Ezekiel 11 verses 22 and 23, where it records the presence of God moving to the Mount of Olives before it departs the city. Ezekiel eleven twenty-two. 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. So the clear implication here now, as the glory is moved from the Holy of Holies to the threshold, from the threshold to the mountain, is that the glory has departed. Ichabod, a real Ichabod. The glory is gone. When Eli's daughter-in-law and Phineas' wife gave birth to that son named Ichabod, they believed the glory was departed because the Ark of the Covenant had gone into exile. But here it's now God's people are taken into exile. But before they're taken to exile, the glory departs. And we find this pattern throughout the history of Israel. They disobey obey God, they serve idols, and God removes his glory, and they go into captivity. But Ichabod, no glory, is always a temporary condition for God's people. God's glory will always reappear. It may take time. It may take centuries of time. But the promised glory will always return to God's people. In 1 Samuel, the glory, when the ark was taken away, would return when the people repented. We're going to see that whole story shortly, in a couple of weeks, in the new year. The people repent, the glory comes back. But what about this glory in Ezekiel? It's leaving the temple. Would it ever come back? Well, the temple would come back. It would only take about less than a century later. Temples destroyed. They rebuild the temple. They make what's commonly called the second temple. But notably absent from the second temple is the glory. The glory of God is not there. But the prophets did promise that the glory of the second temple, Haggai 2.9, would be greater than the former. Though it lied in darkness, though it lied without hope, though it seemed to have no glory, the glory would return, Malachi 3.1, the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. The darkness that the people were in, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. God has not left his people without hope. If God's people must live their lives in darkness and exile, apart from his glory, it is always going to be temporary. Yet, for 700 years, the Jewish people, no temple, no manifestation of God's presence. Finally, they build the temple. It's not the same. No presence of God. And maybe they started to give up hope. Maybe they started to give up hope that the glory would ever return. So, 
as often happens, even in our own lives, we try to make up for it. We try to make up for the glory missing by, by making up with religious rituals. Going to church on, on Christmas. I'm going to make up for that, which I know is missing in my life. I'm going to go to church. Thinking that ceremonies and traditions are more important than the real presence of God. According to the Mishnah, which is the Hebrew record of the oral law, on the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the end of the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they had a, a ceremony. And the priests and the Levites, what they would do is they would try to commemorate the miracle of the Shekinah. And what they did is they had these enormous, you can imagine this, four enormous candlesticks, menorahs, 75 feet high. I don't know, maybe this is about, ceiling's what, about 25? Three times the height of, of this ceiling? You can imagine a, a menorah that, that is a, a seven-branched candlestick, four of them, with golden bowls containing seven and a half gallons of oil each. Okay, try to, try to imagine that. Seven and a half gallons per cup the, the, the wicks of this, this is all recorded in, in uh, the book of Sukkah, in the Mishnah. The wicks were the old clothing of the Levites. That's what, how they would wick these, uh, these oil lamps. The light that was emanating from these four menorahs, these four candlesticks, was so bright that the Mishnah says in Sukkah 5.3 that no courtyard in Jerusalem was not lit up with the light. Jerusalem glistened like a diamond and her light could be seen from afar. During this time, the temple was actually called the light of the world. But physical menorahs, as bright as they may be, as beautiful as some of these houses that, that, where they put up all these lights all over their house, as much light as you could ever imagine. You go down a block and the whole looks like daylight. Physical menorahs, human light, is nothing more than a burning ember compared to the glory that had departed that temple. And ironically, these traditions became the very thing that led Israel into more darkness. Religion and ritualism became the basis for their once living faith. I have one more reference to glory. Let's go right out to the end of the Old Testament. Turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi. And remember that prophecy of Jacob over his son, Levi? Let me remind you that God would not unite his glory to Levi. Well, the last mention of glory in the Old Testament is in Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it, that prophecy is fulfilled. Malachi 2, 1 and 2. And now this command is for you, O priests. That's the tribe of Levi. This command is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart, to give glory, there it is, Kavod, last mention in the Old Testament, give glory to my name, says the Lord, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. So the Old Testament leaves us not only with the last word, curse, but also upon the tribe of Levi, the curse that comes on the priesthood. And generation after generation after generation comes and goes, comes and goes, 
without light, without glory, spiraling down into deeper and deeper darkness, no word of God, just traditions, trying to uh, uh, figure out what might glorify God and not knowing, groping around in darkness without a word from God, the priesthood becoming more and more corrupt, more and more steeped in tradition and superstition, and it gets worse in every generation until, until what? Until there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping their watch over the flock by night, and lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them. Hallelujah. And there was the, the, with the angel a heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. This is so exciting. The glory returned just as it was prophesied. It was a long season of darkness, but light arrived right on time. Isaiah 9 is fulfilled. And just as the Shekinah glory gave direction to the children of Israel by a light, what was the great light, according to Matthew chapter 2, verse 9? The great light that led people to Christ in those early days. It was a, a light over Bethlehem, a star. It says in Matthew 2, 9, a star came to rest over the place where the child was. The glory returned. God's presence returned. And that word star in Greek also means radiance. So the glory of God returns. The Shekinah returns. The manifest presence of God returns. The indicator that God was wanted to dwell with his people returns. And it does exactly what it did for the children of Israel. It leads. It directs his people. It says, Emmanuel. God with us. God again bears witness of his presence. Only this time, it'd be the last time. The final time. And this time, not only would this light be a light just for Israel, but this would be a light for the world. And Haggai 2.9 is fulfilled. As that old man, Simeon, in the temple, holds the baby in his arms eight days later, when they brought him to the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised, there's this old man Simeon, and he holds the baby in his arms in Luke 2, verse 30, and he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. This eight-day-old baby brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph just to fulfill the law, to be circumcised on the eighth day, fulfills the prophecy of Haggai 2.9. The glory of the latter house, the new temple, greater than even the glory of Solomon's temple. Even that fire that came down from heaven when Solomon dedicated the temple, this was greater when suddenly the Lord comes to his temple as a baby. Now, my brothers and sisters, it's that glory, it's that glory withheld from Levi that he unites us to in Christ, as we are a kingdom of priests. It's that glory that he unites to us. The Apostle Paul writes, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's every believer. 
Now, we don't see it physically, as Israel did, but it's much greater. In Christ, we are united to it. This is what Jesus said in John 17. He said, the glory, which he's praying, and he says, the glory which thou hast given me, Father, I have given to them. That is the glory. And we wonder why there's so many beautiful Christmas hymns that we just love to sing. Who cannot help but sing? Hark, the herald angels sing. Charles Wesley, one of my favorites. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Christ, the Son of God, the Word of the Father, leaves heaven. He, where he's adored by angels to come to earth to be despised and rejected by men. Takes on flesh. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Late in time. Long time elapsed. A lot of darkness. A lot of years. People say, where's the hope of his coming? But he comes. That first promise, remember, the first promise of the Messiah goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's a long time. Late in time. Behold, him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, eternity steps into time, but to do so, he has to veil that glory because we're still in flesh. and We can't see it, just like Moses couldn't see it. So veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. See him with your eyes. Veiled in flesh, hail the incarnate deity. Jesus, fully man, fully God. Although his Godhead, his divine nature, needs to be concealed, veiled by his human nature, doesn't mean that it's diminished. Jesus in the manger is the incarnation. He is the embodiment of Yahweh. He is God. And that's what Christmas is about, the coming of Yahweh into the world to do that which he always wished to do, always desired to do, enter into dwelling with his people, covenanting with his people to be our God and we his people. It's about the Son of God who came down, who existed eternally with the Father, the radiance of His glory, exact representation of His nature, taking on human nature, becoming a man. It's about His coming as a man named Jesus, in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. It's about the coming of the fullness of time, that time that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, where a ruler would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. A child would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. All of these written centuries before Jesus came. The Messiah would be the Anointed One, the shoot from the stem of Jesse, a son of David, a king. He would be, according to the word of Isaiah 7, 14, Emmanuel, God is with us. And Jesus became one of us so that God would dwell among us, that he would be our God and we his people. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We can rejoice just in that. Take a Selah. But let's try to consider some application. How do we glorify God? 
I think a sermon on the glory of God would not be complete without a discussion of what it means to glorify God. Because we, we just learned about this glorious God. We'd want to know, how can I live for him? How can I glorify him? First, if God's glory is the revelation of himself, then it's impossible to glorify God without first knowing him. Since God's glory is personal, it's not merely knowing about him, but it implies a personal relationship. To know him, to know Jesus, is not just saying, I know about Jesus, but it's following him. It's trusting him. It's submitting your life to his lordship in faith and obedience. You enter into a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've never done so, you can begin doing so simply by crying out to him, asking him for his mercy, and saying, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to trust my life to you. And then as a Christian, you know him more. You know him more. You continually fellowship with God. You continually are changed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Because God is infinite and knowledge of him is infinite. It doesn't stop. It is, oh, I'm gonna, I have a personal relationship with Christ, thank you, and you move on and you do everything else like you're doing in the, in the rest of your life. No, he is infinite. You have your rest of your life. You have this infinite quest as believers that we have to grow in giving God glory through our increasing understanding of his revelation. For centuries, Israel lived in darkness, steeped in tradition, no light, no glory, wondering what happened to the glory, what happened to his presence, what happened to his power. Are you asking the same thing? Maybe you're asking the same thing. Where God is the glory, where is the power I once knew? Well, knowing that glory means weight, something felt, touched, experiential, glorifying God then must have some substance to it, must have some weight in our lives. It doesn't end, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, thank you, I'm going to heaven. It doesn't end there. There's weight to this. There's something that's experienced in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our workplace, at school, wherever you are. It's something that can be seen in you. Where is the glory in your life, in your marriage, in your family? Where is the glory in our church? Are, are our lives filled with the presence and power of God, or are we settling for our own set of evangelical traditions? Amen. Oh, I go to church. Yeah, the rest of my life. Right? Don't bother me the other six days. Are we settling for tradition just like they? Are, are we living as if we're still in darkness when the glory is here? The children of Israel de first departed from the Lord, so their glory departed from them. But when they repented, the glory returned. Let's learn from their example. That's what that's there for, for us to learn from it. So what do you need to repent of? Do you need to return to the Lord today so that you might, might once again experience his glory in your life? The Apostle Paul tells us, that believers, as vessels of God's glory, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 and 8, he says, if the ministry which brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, talking about the, 
the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. If the Ten Commandments, he says, came with kavod, with glory, so that Israel could not look uh, steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory was already fading away, he says, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? That's talking about you and I, brother, sister. Brethren, we have something better than the glory that came to Israel. Something more glorious than they. Do we live like it? Do our, do our faces shine like it? And I'm not talking about literally. I ask you, what effect does God's glory have in your life? Do you look different? Or do you just fit in with the world around you? Do you resemble more of the world than you do Christ? In Christ, the glory has come. Stop living as if it hasn't come. Steeped in idolatry and sin and disobedience, give praise to God with your life. That's the kavod, reverence and awe. That's the kavod. God is worthy of this. His glory should activate a response of reverential worship with our very lives. And because God's glory is self-giving, this giving of our lives also is others-oriented. It's edifying to others. Galatians 2.20, James 2.12 confirm that reverence for God, the kavod, reverence or kavod, is demonstrated by our willingness to die to ourselves, to obey his commands, to take sin seriously. See, if your life is just mixing in with the neighborhood, just trying to look like your neighbors, is not standing out, God has always called his people to be different. So let me ask you, children that are here, children, do you revere your parents? Or are you just like the rest of the world, dishonoring them? Husbands, are you honoring your wives? Wives, are you showing honor and respect to your husband, even, even at the hard times, those hard moments? See, we can't claim to honor God who we do not see and then can't give honor to those who we see every day. Glory may be manifested in the manner in which we give gentle answers to those who we disagree with. How countercultural is that? Nowadays, it's everything, everyone who disagrees are each, at each other's throats, or they're mocking, or they're rolling their eyes, or they're laughing at people with different opinions. How is that glorious? How is that different? How can the world see glory if we act just like them? Another way we manifest God's glory is in our evangelism. Just as God made himself known through the revelation of his word, we reflect that glory in the proclamation of his word. Since the fall of Adam, God created his glory for the purpose of reconciling, dwelling with his people. Human beings, God and sinner, reconciled. Then, as a reflection of God's glory, we must also be ambassadors of reconciliation. We must share the gospel. God's intention in unveiling his glory is centered on redemption. So, to glorify God, let us be purposeful to reach out to those who we know are separated from him. Both this holiday season and always. Sharing the gospel. Inviting them to church. 
joining the evangelism of your, of your church community. To glorify God is to proclaim his greatness to believers and unbelievers, as the hymn goes, his power and glory evermore proclaim. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, can you imagine what it would look like to those around us if believers embraced these practical applications of a kavod, a life lived to promote the glory of God, especially in situations where your flesh would tell you differently. Kavod was always meant to be on display. And so our lives are to display the glory of God. And we can do so, brothers and sisters, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit who God sent into our hearts, who God shone in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, which Paul says is an extraordinary power. So brethren, let us pray that God would so fill us with his presence and his power that we, even greater than Moses, better than Moses, would reflect that glory into the lives of those around us. Amen.